Good morning. I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. If you're using the Bibles provided, it's on page 977. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sherry, for reading that text for us. I encourage you to keep your copy of the scriptures open to that text. Let me make a quick comment. Um, you know, sometimes when we think through songs that we sing, um, the last song we sang, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, you know, we've Wayne thinks I'm going to talk about one thing. I'm not going to talk about that line. Uh, I'm actually going to talk about another one. Is um, the last line there we sang actually two or three times. His wounds have paid a ransom. Um, have you thought about that? Like, who's the ransom being paid to there? Okay. In the early 20th century, there's a, a, a theory of the atonement. It was called the ransom theory. And according to that theory, it was that... Uh, we paid, uh, that Jesus paid Satan a ransom. Uh, C.S. Lewis, love C.S. Lewis. Gets a, you know, theologically there's some times where he gets, as I said when I, I taught through some things at one of my courses, I, I said he's a little squishy theologically sometimes, okay? Um, what I mean by that is, is, you know, sometimes it's like, eh, I like you C.S., you know, but here we go. And this is one of those areas where, you know, if you read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene, you know, where Edmund is really kind of, like, bought back from the, the, the witch. And, um, and that's kind of what was going on is this idea of this ransom theory. That's not what that song is teaching because that's not a biblical idea of ransom. The ransom was paid to God. He was paying because the debt was not to Satan. The debt was to God. Okay? And so when we see this, one of the beautiful things about salvation is that what Jesus did on the cross for us is that he paid the debt that he himself was owed, but he himself paid it on our behalf on the cross. It's a beautiful thing to think through. So when we sing these songs, it's good to think through them uh, theologically. That has nothing at all to do with my sermon, okay? That's free, all right? All right, so, so that's good. Uh, Good to have Mark Millman here. He's uh, with the SPC. He's the, uh, yeah, he's got some fancy title. I don't remember what it is, but uh, he's here, and so it's good to see you, Mark, and uh, good to have Violet on the Cajon today. Uh, just a good day so far. So, so thankful uh, that we can, we can gather together here today. Uh, Paul and Caitlin had the coffee ready, so for you guys, 
You all ready? Yeah, all right. So no excuses. Everyone's awake this morning. Okay. We're in Ephesians 4. This is the last uh, sermon of this uh, short series that we're doing uh, from this text of Scripture uh, about elevating the church. And then next week, we're going to go into our longer series that we're going to spend some time the majority of the year in. And that's a study of 1 Corinthians. And it's going to flow. You're going to see it's going to flow out of this series. Because uh, one of the things that we want to do is we want to talk about elevating church to its proper place, its pr- proper biblical place in our lives. But then, uh, so we're looking at some of the background, the theological underpinnings of that with this short series here. And then we're going to look at it as a case study in the church of Corinth. And it's going to be kind of called Messy Church. Because if you know anything about uh, the church of Corinth, you know that there was a lot of problems and a lot of things that they needed to work through. And so we're going to take kind of some of the principles that we've really been trying to lay here in this four uh, sermon series and then push them into 1 Corinthians as we look at what 1 Corinthians is about and describing how the gospel is answering all the key problems that are coming up in the church. And so I would encourage you to start reading through 1 Corinthians if you haven't already. And then also what might be helpful to you is watch the, the, uh, the Bible Project's video on 1 Corinthians. And so if you, you're not familiar with that, go to YouTube, type in Bible Project 1 Corinthians, and then you'll see, I think it's about an eight-minute video or something where uh, someone just kind of gives an overview of 1 Corinthians. That would be helpful if you watch that uh, in preparation for next week. But we're not there yet, so let's finish with Ephesians chapter 4. And let me remind you a little bit of the reason why we're doing this, because the perceived importance of church is waning in our country, but also in our churches. That's what we've said. And yet, the church is God's plan for the present day. We've talked about that. So we also said to ignore or even diminish the value and significance of church is to sinfully reject God's plan. And so we're just going to talk to you, what does that mean? Because it needs, the church needs to be in its biblical place, and that means that we can have a too low view of it, but we can also put it into a position that it does not belong, meaning uh, that it actually is the source of authority here. Now, the scriptures are the source of authority for us, and the church is to be living according to the scriptures. So we just want to have it in the proper biblical place. Let me just give you a quick uh, review of where we've gone so far in the first week of the sermon series. We said that we elevate the church by gladly receiving Jesus' gift to the church and that they were presented in this text as people rather than skills. And remember in verses 11 and 12, it says that he's given apostles, he's given evangelists, he's given pastor teachers for the building up of the church. And so the gifts that Jesus gives to build up the church in this text are presented as people rather than skills. And so we need to receive those gifts uh, from, from the hand of Jesus. In week two, Wayne uh, handled that sermon, and he talked about how we need to elevate the church by being transformed together. And we see that in verses like 12 and 13 by being transformed together. Last week, we said that we elevate the church by accepting it as Jesus' gift for the purpose of combating prolonged immaturity and to avoid spiritual instability. This is what we must have as the church. If we're going to be growing, if we're going to be stable, we're going to be rooted, the, the church has to play a crucial role in that in our lives. This is God's gift to us. And so, again, to reject that is to sinfully reject what God has given to us. 
So this week, as we round this out here of this text here, we're going to look primarily at verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. Growth is mentioned twice. I don't know if you picked it up when Sherry read that the word growth was there twice. We see in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. And then in verse 16, it says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. So we see a theme in these two verses, and it is about growth. And so the Apostle Paul, what he is doing here is he provides for us a strategy of growth, a growth strategy for our church. And so some people say, well, how do you want the church to grow? This is our strategy right here that we're going to look at today, okay? So I'm going to frame those around two imperatives or two must-haves for uh, spiritual growth or for the growth of our church here based on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Okay, there's a long introduction. We got the ground set, the table is set, so to speak, to switch metaphors. And, you know, the, the plates are on the table, the, the, the silverware is ready to go, and now we're ready for the, the main course here as we open the Word together and look at it. But let's pause and ask God's blessing, though. Father, anytime I preach, anytime I stand before people and proclaim the Word of God, Lord, I am acutely aware of my need for your enablement. Lord, we need your spirit to guide us. Lord, I need you to help my thinking and my communication skills. Lord, please, anything that I say, may it be accurate to the text. Lord, we, nev- we, don't, want to go, we don't want to stray away from your word. Um, this is your word. This is your church. We don't want to mess with that. And so as we've gathered together, Lord, I pray that you remove distractions. I pray we'd be able to put all the cares and anxieties and the, and the frustrations or just even the responsibilities that we have in our lives. I pray we'd be able to put those aside just for a little bit and focus on this text and be very sensitive to your spirit's leading. And God, we're just thankful that we can, we can do this here today. And at the end of the day, may you be glorified. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So I said there's two imperatives, two growth imperatives. Here's the first one. The first growth imperative, church growth imperative, is that we must be a church that speaks the truth in love. You see it right in the text there. You see it there in in verse 15 after he's talked about immaturity. He's talked about, first of all, in verse 13, how we need to be mature. Then he gives some examples of immaturity, which we talked about last week. Then he says, rather, so instead of being immature, here's what we need to do. We need to speak the truth in love. Now, there's a lot of uh, commentaries that have written about this because the way Paul chooses to, to write this in here, it's a kind of an unusual way he writes this um, He doesn't really use it in the same way before, in any other of his writings. And the idea is, is that it's like we're, we're, we're truthing, so it, the truth is actually in, a, in an action way. So it's like we're supposed to be communicating truthing or truthing in love is what he's saying here. Now, what does he mean by truth here? So there's the question that uh, we, we need to ask here is this idea of speaking the truth. Okay, so here's, here's you know, we, we have to speak the truth. So what is truth there? And I think, wasn't it uh, Pontius Pilate who, who asked that question, that infamous question? Yeah, well, what is truth? Remember that? So same thing here. Well, what does Paul mean by truth here? Because that's important for us to understand. If we're going to understand what he's, he's asking us to do, we have to understand what he means by this. 
And this is where it's, you, you can look up the definitions of these words. You can look up uh, commentators. You can look up lexicons and all these you know, different tools to try to dive into this. And really what you come up with is it says, um, well, the word is used in a lot of different ways. And so you kind of just got to pick according to the context of it. In, in one way, this word could be referred to like a confessional truth or like a doctrinal statement. Um, or we would say even like a gospel message, okay? Like a, a confession of faith. That's one way that this word can be used. And in another way, it could be just this, is this general idea of something that is factually correct. Um, so it's just a general thing of truth here. So the question then comes, so what does Paul mean here? All right. And I don't know that we have to choose between the two because the context doesn't really push us really hard one way or another. I mean, you can make arguments on both sides on this. But as you begin to think about this, you think, why do we have to make a choice in this particular conversation or because in this particular text? Because we are to speak confessional doctrinal truth and love, but yet we're also to speak factual everyday truths or things that are correct in love as well. And so I think what Paul is getting at here is just a general disposition of that we need to be people of truth and we need to speak that in love. So speaking the truth. Um, So the question comes is like, well, that makes sense, of course, but why, you know, why is that put in here? And and here's a key is if, if there's ever a command in scripture or something that we're told to do, Um, that's put in there because we need it, because it's hard for us to do, or we typically don't do it, or we're tempted not to do it. So what we take from this is, if we're told, you got to speak the truth in love, that means this would be a common enough struggle for all of us that there's times where we are tempted not to speak the truth, okay? And you say, well, Jeremy, I'm not a liar. That's one thing I hate. I hate is lying, and I never, never, never tell a lie. I always speak the truth, okay? Now, some of you are laughing at that, okay? Um, Now, I I think all of us hate it when someone lies to us. But I think if we think about it, there are times where we just do not speak the truth. Sometimes it's out of ignorance. Uh, Sometimes we think we know the truth, but we've not fully vetted our impulse, our inclination, or our opinion, and we're actually holding to something that is not true. And we share something that is incorrect. I mean, how many times have you shared a story or you shared an account and found out later on that that was actually not true? You didn't mean to lie. You didn't mean to speak uh, an untruth, but you did because you were ignorant of the actual truth. That happens to all of us. There's been plenty of times where... People have seen something on social media and shared it. And then, you know, three seconds later, someone pops up and is like, well, actually, you know, this is not true. And I think we can take from that as we probably need a vet while we're posting before we post it. But the point is that sometimes we can just do it out of ignorance. But that's not always the reason. I mean, sometimes we are, we don't tell the truth because out of fear, out of fear We're afraid of someone's response. Does this dress make me look fat? You know, how are they going to respond to that? Okay. Um, Or we're afraid to offend or hurt someone. You see something in someone's life 
and you, you, you know that you should probably talk to them about it, but you just don't feel like you have the relationship with them to do that. And so you don't because you don't know how they're going to respond. And that's really rooted in fear. Are they going to reject me? Are they going to get angry at me? Are they going to be uh, dismissive? Am I going to, by speaking this truth, am I going to be signing up for an elongated debate that I really don't feel like having right now? You know, those are all reasons that sometimes maybe we don't speak the truth. Uh, control would be another reason. Again, we can't always predict how someone will respond, so we control the situation by not saying something, or we withhold the truth because we're pretty certain how they are going to respond. And so, again, it's very close to fear, but it's not just fear. It's actually we're trying to control the circumstance of our life, and that so we do not speak the truth in those moments. And this could be a lot of things like, you know, um, how do you think I did on that? Um, someone, maybe they, they did some type of performance or something, and it was a train wreck. It was an actual train wreck. Well, how do you think it went? It was great. It was great. You know, uh, that's not speaking the truth in that moment. You say, so what am I supposed to do, Jeremy? Am I supposed to say, that was terrible. That was terrible. You know, I think it was William Jennings Bryan. I think I've told you the story before, but William Jennings Bryan, who was just this uh, great orator, his, his mother came to hear him give a speech one time. And so afterwards, he asked his mom, well, how do you think it went? And as a mom could only do, she said, you missed many, many opportunities, good opportunities to sit down. <laughs> okay? All right? You know? <laughs> It's a nice way of saying, no, no, you, you were too long, you should have been done. All right, so the point is, is that we have, uh, uh, you know, is this how we respond to this? You know, we don't want to do that. Well, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, that's where he says speaking the truth, but how? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. And we have to have both. According to the Apostle Paul, it's not enough for us to speak the truth, Okay. It's not enough to speak the truth because sometimes we have the opposite problem. Instead of being afraid to speak the truth, we actually love speaking the truth. We love telling someone, you know, okay, I've listened to you speak to me and you just have to know that in those five minutes of me listening to you, about 15 brain cells died and I will never ever get these moments of my life back again. But other than that, it was fine. <laughs> Sometimes people love just to be almost caustic in their truth-telling as well. Paul says, no, it's not enough for us to speak the truth. We must speak the truth in love. Now, why is it so important? Why is that so important? Because truth without love isn't really about the truth. If we're not couching or we're not covering, that's a better term, if we're not covering or saturating our truth-telling in love, most likely it's not really about the truth then. It could be about some other motivation. It's about being right. It's about scoring points in an argument. It's because we're annoyed by our perception that how ignorant they are of the subject to which they are pontificating about. You know, it's almost annoying to us, and so we speak the truth. I'm going to put them in this place. This person doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, these are motivations that kind of come up sometimes, that come up often in our lives. It's about winning a debate. 
Now, I'm trying to get ahead of this a little bit, but if you haven't figured it out yet, 2024 is an election year, okay? There is so much of speaking truth or what people consider truth without love in this. I mean, think about it. How many videos have you seen or online videos have you seen? And maybe here would be like a title of it. Liberal destroyed by a five-year-old. Conservative humiliated by one simple question. You've seen these videos, right? Is that really about truth in love? No. It's about scoring the point. It's about putting someone else in their place. And, the, and what Paul is saying here is saying, if we are going to be a church that grows, remember, that's the context. If we're going to be a church that grows, we can't be uh, characterized by people who are speaking in such ways and, and telling what we consider truth or what we believe to be true. And I'm not even going to argue one way or another if it's true or not. But the point is, is that we have to speak it in love towards one another here. Because truth without love isn't really about truth, but then the opposite is also dangerous as well, that love without truth isn't really loving. So some people, we want to show love, but we don't tell people the truth because, you know, we're, we love the person so much and we don't want to hurt them or we don't want to offend them. But that's really not loving if we're withholding truth that they actually need to hear. If we don't tell them the truth, we're not loving them. We can't lie to people because we fear that the truth will bother them. So we must be people of the truth, but truth in love. Man, why does Paul have to make everything so hard? <laughs> you know, you look at this as like, oh, man, I mean, you know, so we're told to speak truth, which is hard enough as it is, but now we have to have it with the right motive in the right way. And the reason why is because that's what builds people up. What builds people up is when we're honest with each other, but when the love covers the honesty and saturates the honesty, people will receive honesty typically much better. I can't promise that it'll always happen. But people will receive truth-telling in a much better way if it's saturated in love and concern for the person and concern for their well-being rather than just simply winning the debate or showing that you know more than what they know about it. So how do we do that? How do, how, do we, how do we balance this? How is this even possible here? Well, I'm just going to give you four verses. And what I'm doing is I'm calling these the biblical speech filter, okay? I'm just going to give you four verses. I'm going to put them on the screen. And here's what I'm going to suggest you do. You write these verses down. You try to memorize them. You put them on a three-by-five card or whatever. And whenever you're in a situation where you feel like you need to say something or you feel like you might need to say something to someone run your comments through these four verses, okay? And run it through this filter and say, okay, how can I take it? Because you may be correct, and you probably are correct, that you actually have to say something. The, the answer or the problem isn't always what we're saying. It's how we're saying it. And it's really not conducive to building up the body if we're just yipping at each other all the time, okay? So here's the, here's the, the, the first verse. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is how we know if something is love, okay? If you think of a passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13 comes to mind right away. In verses 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, endures all things. Now, can you imagine if you filtered everything that you said through that passage right there? Think about how it would radically affect our conversations. Husbands and wives, think about this. Because here's what typically happens. You put up with each other, you overlook things, and you don't know, okay. And then the day, it just the stars align, right, where you're kind of in a, in a little bit of a bad mood or, you know, something's bad happening. Maybe you're under stress or something like this. And all of a sudden, all those little annoyances that maybe you should have talked to them about or something like that, whoom, they come out together at once. Well, you know what you do? You always... Or, you know what, you know, here, yeah, this is rich. You're telling me about this, but here's, here's where you're at. Have you, have you considered this? Now, wait a minute here. Maybe you do need to share some of those observations with your spouse, but you know what that is? That's irritable and resentful. And so you may need to have that conversation, but it's got to funnel through this first. And so if you can't have that conversation with someone without being irritable and resentful, you need to wait. Doesn't mean you never have the conversation, what it means is that you say, okay, God, I am not in the place to have this conversation right now or bring this up because I am just going to do this out of irritation. Now, maybe I still need to have this conversation with this person, but it can't come out of a spirit of irritability, so help me, help me with that. You see, this is part of the filter, right? We could go through so many of these things, arrogant and rude, you know, um, I can't tell you how many social media posts I have typed out and then immediately deleted without posting it because I realized I am just trying to be rude or I'm trying to be arrogant. Um, I'm trying to show that I know more than this. And what is the point of that? It's actually sinful. God, forgive me. Delete. And I have, I'll, I'll say this, I have never been disappointed in deleting a message but I have been disappointed in posting one, okay? It's like what one of my friends says. He says, I've never seen anyone win an argument on social media. I've seen almost everyone lose on social media, though. I'm not saying that you, know, you can't have a discussion on social media. That's not my point. But the point is, you've got to run that post through this right here. That's what builds up the community and love. So when you have a conversation with each other, where's it coming from? Is it coming out of love? All these types of things that we have here. I told you there's four passages, so I need to move on. The next one is, is if that one's not clear enough, then we have others. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Am I saying this because I'm trying to build this person up? Or am I just annoyed with them? Am I frustrated by them? Now again, I'm not saying that it's wrong necessarily to be frustrated by somebody else. If someone else is sinning, that should bring a level of frustration. I mean, in this text, in this chapter, we're going to see Paul tell um, the writers or, or the, the recipients of the church at Ephesus, be angry and sin not. He says, but be angry. I mean, there are things that we should be angry about. 
Okay, so that's not the problem here. It's how do we display that? So it's not wrong to be frustrated by what someone has said, but it's how do we respond to that? You see, if we're going to build ourselves up as a church here, we're going to see the church grow together in strength and things, we have to be very, very, very intentional with our conversations with each other and how we speak to one another. And that when we speak to one another, it's, it's, it's just we're, we're covering our, what we're saying in love towards one another. That's what builds someone up. When you show through your speech that you're showing love and care for someone else in the church, that strengthens the church. But then the opposite is also true, is that when we, when we don't speak in love towards each other, that has a negative impact on our church. And so uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let me give you two more. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let it be grace. Okay, put yourself in their spot. Okay, where are they coming from here? What's going on in their life right now that may have led them to, to say this? or that have influenced their thinking on this? What do I know about their background that is making that this is such an important issue to them? Again, I am not saying that then that keeps us from having conversations. We need to have conversations. So if you're taking away from this, you know what? Just don't talk about anything controversial and we're good. That's not what we're saying here. But it's how we have those conversations. And so you think about it in a gracious way. Okay, okay, this person, here's how they grew up. This person, here's what's going on in their life right now. Okay, I can understand why maybe they just don't feel like they have time to have a conversation about this or something. Again, it's that gracious spirit towards them and trying to meet them and cover that conversation of love. And then Paul wrote to uh, Timothy who had a pastoral type ministry. And here's what he said about when the conversation was turning um, uh, antagonistic towards him. Here's how Paul told uh, a pastor to respond to people who came to him with kind of a sharp tongue. He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so this is a situation where the person is actually sitting in the conversation towards, the, the, in this case, a pastor and here's how Paul is telling him to respond to that. Don't be quarrelsome. Correct them, but in the spirit of gentleness, God may give them understanding. So don't come at them hard. And there's been times in my ministry where I have failed to do this, and I've had to apologize to people. And right now, in my mind, there is a situation where there was a, a, you know, a time where I had to go to a person and say, I was trying to correct, but I was quarrelsome, and I was wrong. Please forgive me. I, I mean, so I have made this mistake. And I pray that I'm growing, and I pray that, that that's not a common thing. But this is a principle that all of us need to take, is that if someone is coming at us, how do we respond to that? Immediately, we, we, we want to say, all right, gloves are off. Here we go. All right. And, and Paul says, you can correct the person, and you need to correct the person. So don't shy away from the truth, but do so in a way that's gracious. Because God may be working in their heart, and if you just come at them with you know, both barrels, 
that's going to really, really hinder the, the conversation. So, speaking the truth in love, it is crucial for us. So, make sure what we say, what we post online is truth. But it's not enough for it to be true. We must be able to say it in love. And how do we know? Run your comments uh, through the biblical speech filter, and that will really help uh, you know, weed out some of the motivations that are there. So I told you that there's two imperatives that we found in this text about growth. And the first is this idea that we have to speak the truth in love. But in verse 16, it says that the whole body is joined together with every joint when it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The second imperative is this, that each part of the church must work together, okay? Every one of us. This is a universal, I want you to know, the universal application here. It says each part. Now, uh, each part has to be working together. But also, notice that uh, um, Paul here in verse 13, what does he say there? He says, until, he talks about building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. Verse, uh, let's see here, verse 15 Rather speak the truth in love, we are able to grow. It's interesting that Paul is inserting himself in this. It's interesting he's saying, hey, listen, it's almost as if he's saying, this is a lesson for all of us here. We all have to be uh, involved. We all have to be people who are working together on this. This can't be just a part of the church over here is working on it and the rest of it doesn't care. If the church is going to grow up to maturity the way the church is supposed to be, then all of us have to embrace this. All of us have to, to, to say that this is something that is the priority for us here. So there's a universal application. And then in verse 16, where it says each part is working. So in this whole text here, it's talking about all of us. All of us have to do this. So if you're here today, I told you earlier, it is not by God's mistake and so this is something we need to take, we, we need to think through. And we need to say, okay, whatever church that you're normally part of, if you're visiting, uh, uh, you know, from another church, um, well, then, then you need to take this to the church that you're actively involved in. For the rest of us who this is our, our typical church home, we really need to say that every one of us needs to embrace this. This is something God has called all of us to do. So there's a universal application, but note there's a, there's a common metaphor here of the body, okay? When each part is working together, it makes the body grow. So what I want to do is I want to show you that this is a, a metaphor that the Apostle Paul often uses. So I'm going to show you one other text. So go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's page 959 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there. But go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because I want you to see this other passage that the same author is, uh, is using with the same metaphor. And the metaphor is this, is that Jesus, his body is the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He's connected to the church. He's the one that's calling the shots. All of us in the individual, uh, in a universal sense, but in a very local sense as well, we are uh, individual members of this body of Christ, okay? And so he, he fleshes this out. 
pun intended there, he fleshes this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 a little bit more. Okay, so look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So he's saying it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter if you're a slave, doesn't matter if you're free, doesn't matter. We are all part of the same body of Christ. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Okay? It says... And if the ear should say, verse 16, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Stop for a second there. You have a very crucial role to play in the body of Christ. Every one of us does. That's what this verse is teaching. This is what this text is teaching. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a role to play in the body of Christ. Every one of us does. And it doesn't matter, you know, and we all have different functions and things, but we need each other. He goes on in verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts of the one body. Uh, Again, the eye cannot say, I have no need of you. To the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, indispensable. And he goes on to talk about how that we all are members of the body. and We all have different uh, parts and roles to play. This is so important that we have to, if we're going to grow as a church and continue to grow, because God has been growing us, but if we continue to grow, we all have to embrace this, the importance of church, the importance, the, the role that we play in each other's lives. That's what First Corinthians 12 is about. And we're going to get there in our series uh, this year. But it talks about how that we just need each other. You have to embrace that. You have to believe that and you have to speak the truth together in love. This is how the church grows together, according to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, maybe you heard um, that Michigan won a national championship. Um, did you guys think I would go, how long did you think I would go without using this as an illustration here? All right, okay. Now, um, what you don't know is uh, why we won the national championship there. We won the national championship because of Levon, all right? Now, Levon, it was, she told me after Michigan won the Rose Bowl to get to the National Championship game, she said, I actually cheered for Michigan for the first time. And I said, can you do it one more time? You know? So she made a deal, okay? She made a deal that if I cheered for the Packers the next day, then she would cheer for the, uh, the Michigan in the, uh, in the National Championship game. I readily accepted those terms and Michigan won the national championship game. LaVon and I are in contract negotiations for next year, season, uh, to see about that right now. Actually, that has nothing to do with it. What, what made the team unique, okay, is um, there was a culture change. And again, if, if, you, if you didn't follow, you, you know, a sports team, you, you, you kind of don't really pick up on these things. But, 
you know, as you know, I kind of casually follow Michigan football. And, um, and, and there, there was a huge culture change in the last two to three years um, in the team. And it really became about the players playing for each other and not caring about individual uh, records. It really was. Uh, and I can get into several illustrations of that, but I'm not going to belabor the point because I'm the only one in the room that really cares about it. But the point is, is that they were working for each other. And that had a huge part in why they had success this last season. It's because no longer was it about, you know, this team kind of doing their thing and they're just doing their thing. They were really working together. And that culture change, it really came uh, to a highlight this last season. You know, as I thought about that, I looked at that, I saw, you know, football is football, and in eternity it doesn't really matter. But the church is forever. We need to be about each other. We need to be about the success of each other. No longer about individual accolades, no longer about, okay, I'm going to do my thing over here. And, you know, okay, they can, they can do their thing, they can do their thing. I'm going to do my thing over here because I don't really like these people much or, or whatever the case may be. I'm going to do my thing over here. No, it's got to be us working together if our church is going to grow. So what this means is that we can't drop in and out of church. Okay, we, we have to be regularly part of it because if we're just dropping in and out of church, then we're not building those relationships. So there needs to be consistency there, okay? But what it also means is that we can't be at odds with each other. We can't go on like that because that just breaks down unity. That breaks down the growth patterns that we have here. And I say, Jeremy, why are you preaching this? Is it because you sense this incredible riff in our church? And no. Not at all. I just know that God wants us to grow, and I'm looking at the text, and I'm seeing what would keep us from growing, okay? And Ephesians 4 is saying that we have to embrace this together. We have to speak the truth and love to one another, and we have to be considering the best for each other at all times. We have to be together, spend time together. This is the reason why we do things like small groups and adult discipleship hour, and we encourage micro groups, and we encourage people getting together with two people. This is the reason why we have ministries and fellowships and things like that, is for this purpose here. So we must work together. Each part must work together. So how do we do this? In conclusion, as I get ready to land a plane here, how do we speak the truth in love and work together? It's only through the changing power of the gospel, okay? You say, I don't even know if I want to do this. Well, then that's something that needs to change. And, then, and I don't have time, but back in Ephesians chapter 4, I would encourage you to read the rest of the chapter because he talks about a new life. And he talks about putting off and putting on in that section. That's how we do this, is that we begin to be changed by what the gospel has done for us. And speaking of the gospel, we have to really look at it in, 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 in for what it really is. Because the gospel is really the ultimate proclamation of truth and love. Have you thought about it that way? The gospel is really the, the, the best proclamation of, the tr- of truth and love. Truth, the, here's the truth, you're lost. There's the truth. When Jesus went to the cross... He was making a statement. He was making a statement that there was a bunch of sinners who needed him to go to the cross. There was truth. The truth is, is that you and I are lost. We're dead in our sins, and we need Jesus to save us. We need something. We, we need salvation from our sins. All of us have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 6. 
So all of us need um, uh, some type of salvation from our sins. The Bible is also clear that Jesus is the only way. And it's through faith. It says, for by grace have you been saved through faith and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2. And so we have here that this gospel is this proclamation of truth. The truth is that you're a sinner and that without any type of intervention that you are destined to an eternity without God, eternity in hell. And so you, that's real truth there. It's, it's sobering truth. Can you imagine if God didn't speak that truth to us, if he didn't tell us that that was our condition? Can you imagine if he held that truth from us? That'd be terrible. But the gospel is also the truth in love. Because when Jesus went to the cross, not only was he saying you're a sinner and you need my help here, he was saying you're loved and I'm going to the cross on your behalf. And so the gospel here is just speaking the truth in love. It's a care for someone else and yet it's being truthful about this. And so that has to frame our thinking. How do you relate to one another here? How do you see each other here? Some of you have been part of the church for many, many years. How are you developing relationships with each other? How are you ministering to each other? Who are you allowing to minister to you? You say, I just don't really like being around people. Yeah, I get that. I told you the, the older I get, the more of an introvert I become. But can you honestly tell me that the scriptures tell, are, are okay with us being individuals? Can you honestly say that the scriptures say that, yeah, we don't really need to spend time with each other. I can't. The Bible is so clear that we need each other for this. So forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. At the end, again, I'm looking at my time and I need to, to wrap this up. In verse 32 of Ephesians chapter 4, I'll just say this real fast. He, he adds at the end, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's the essence of the gospel right there is that there's truth being said that, okay, in order for forgiveness to happen, uh, I have to be honest and say, I sinned. There's truth. And in order for forgiveness to happen, someone has to love me and say, I forgive you. Okay? And so that's why he summarizes this, because that's the essence of church right there, is us being kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So maybe there's someone you need to approach and say, I've sinned against you. Maybe there's someone you need to say, I've been harboring this kind of irritation towards you. You said this, and I've been just really kind of irritated about it. I've avoided you. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me on this? Or, hey, could we talk about this? You know, speaking the truth. But, you know, I, re I recognize that if I let this go on, we're never going to be the brother and sister or brother and brother in Christ that God has asked us to be. Okay, and so, so this is what the gospel must be doing in our lives if we're going to be a church that's growing here.